Welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tunselman, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television. And Hannah, I'm a little bit starstruck this week. I'm a very, very <laughs> exciting applicant to join the History Film Club. Uh, one of my heroes, writer of Die Hard and the Fugitive, but now leaving that behind to write about Vikings is Jeb Stewart. Welcome, Jeb. Thank you, guys. It's great to be here. Hi, Jeb. We're, we're really excited to um, host you at the History Film Club. And, um, you know, we're excited that Vikings Valhalla is launching on Netflix. And it's the sequel to the previous Viking series. But you're dropping us, aren't you, into a different Viking era? I am. I'm, uh, you know, whereas Michael Hurst, his series was sort of the the launch of the Viking era, you know, starting with the Lindisfarne raid. And, and uh, you know, mine picks up sort of that story at the turn of the new millennium, um, you know, a very interesting time where where some of the the myths are starting to to fade into more recorded history, where you know the characters are much we know a lot more about those characters. Um, that's both a good thing and a bad thing for historical dramatists, as as we'll probably talk about. But it's. It was a very exciting time for me. And when you're moving from that period, because as you say, we know more about these people. So, I mean, straight away, we start with Leif Erikson, who is a Viking name that a lot of people might know, actually, someone quite well known. How, you know, you are coming off, of course, Eric the Red in the previous series and so on. But, you know, how do you kind of go about recreating this, this new, exciting world kind of within the world of Vikings, but it has moved on? It has, you know, I, uh, the way I looked at it um, was I was trying to find a period to, to drop in on and I had to try to find a period where I felt like my audience would could immediately start to identify with certain aspects of, uh, you know, of the world of that world of that medieval world that would that sounded actually quite familiar to what we were going through right now and say the 21st century. Um, uh, you know, uh, sadly, sometimes I think we, you know, as, as a species haven't moved you know, that far down the, down the pike. Um, for example, you know, some of the issues have to do with uh, immigration, you know, religious ideology, you know. So this was a very fertile place to start the drama. Um, the, the Vikings in the 11th century were very split at that point between the, the, the coming and the eventual wave of Christianity that hit Scandinavia. And um, uh, and that was a very uncomfortable and very uh, difficult conversion period. Uh, a lot of people just didn't want to give up the old gods. Um, and then so we had that sort of, you know, good uh, that Christian Viking versus a pagan Viking. What does a pagan Viking look like now, 125 years later? What what does a Christian Viking look like? You know, do they fight the same? Do they have the same ideas? Um, what do they share? And then the other part of the story was sort of this immigration story, which is the Vikings in the 11th century had, you know, at the turn of the 11th century, uh, for about 150 years had lived in these large areas around London and also up in the north, you know, near York, but um, called the Danelaw. And I think a lot of people don't know that they had, after that period of time, it started to integrate with the Saxon society. And a lot of Saxon nobles, you know, around 1002 sort of felt like this was, if we kept going, you know, the assimilation would be complete. And next thing you know, you wouldn't be able to tell Saxon from, from Dane. And, um, and so they encouraged uh, King Athelred to purge the, the Danes, as they called the Vikings, 
from their shores. And I thought this was a perfect place to kind of come in on. It just felt very similar to what we were dealing with, you know, in, you know, in current time with, you know, many of our immigration stories, both in Europe and in North America and places like that. And um, uh, so anyway, it, 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 you know, I, I kind of come from a place when I'm writing this is that I don't want my characters to feel modern, but I want that I, I want their their emotions and and their aspirations and their you know their inspiration to feel very relatable. And I think that's uh, uh, that, that's something I'm very blessed with a terrific cast who agrees with that. And and we had a lot of fun making this. I think I mean it's fascinating the early episodes that you drop us into this world of, of high drama that you've just described where. We come out of a period where the Vikings have been a bit more settled and integrated, and there's obviously been this calm, calmer period of history. And then all of a sudden, it feels like that's about to explode in the story that you're telling us. And, and you set it up with all these different relationships and tensions between people. So they have these religious affiliations or religious differences, political differences, family ties, family grievances, then ideas about which nations you belong to, um, and you know what your identity is. And some of those are potentially quite sort of sensitive issues if we were to set them in a modern story about religious wars or religious grievances. Is it easier perhaps to think through some of those issues when you set it in a distant past as far away from us as the Vikings? Does that give you a chance as a writer to sort of to think about some of those ideas and ask us to think about them a bit? Yeah, I hope, uh, you know, Hannah, I hope you're right. I think that that's, that's what I tend to think. If I was, um, you know, in a, in a Let's use a modern context. If I if if I was having an argument with somebody who held a different, you know, idea in terms of you know religion or politics or whatever like that, it, it's it, oftentimes I'll I'll reframe the story to something else. I mean, there's an interesting historical treatise, you know, called the uh, A Disease of the Public Mind, and it it ostensibly talks about uh the, the the factors leading up to the american civil war and what was interesting is that while you know most historians know that that the slavery problem was a problem even at this at, you know in 1776 and also just after that in the framing of the of the american constitution but um they, they i think most people don't realize how many times in the intervening years from the start of you know the united states to the american civil war there were opportunities to to correct it, to 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 find answers to the slavery problem. And what happened is that as we got closer and closer to, you know, 1861, man, oh, man, we got into these two pieces or two groups, which was you're either for us or you're against us. And you can see that a lot in, in Valhalla. There, the, the, the idea is either you're a pagan Viking or you're a Christian Viking. There's no middle ground in this area. There's no area. And I've tried to create this middle ground in Cadigan, which is sometimes a very, very, very difficult thing to do. It's, you know, I, I, I used to love going to dinner parties where there would be radically different, you know, opinions, you know, around the table. And yet nobody turned the table over and walked out. It was like you could appreciate the intelligent conversation. You could, you know, even if it was completely, you know, diametrically opposed to what my thought was. I loved having that kind of conversation. Sadly, we get into more and more polarized areas where, it's, where you, you, you just can't have those kind of middle ground conversations. So Kattegat, for me, was that last bastion where you could have pagan and Christian mixing there without anybody burning the house down. But obviously, um, that's not a good place for drama. So you have to introduce one or the other to make it 
to, to get the fire going. So, And there is, I mean, no spoilers, of course, but a dinner party in episode one of Valhalla <laughs> ends with more than a table being turned over. <laughs> it, it, it does not end with a happy dessert, shall we say. But I mean, of course, it's kind of a way, isn't it, historical drama for us to work out some of these contemporary problems, for us to think yes. about them. And it's a forum where we can do that. And I mean, I think what's so amazing is how contemporary some of it feels. Because when I was watching in the first episode, which, you know, again, I'm going to avoid spoilers, but it does begin with a sort of very dramatic episode. And I thought, you know, and it very much relates to kind of you know, contemporary notions about genocide and refugees and asylum and this kind of thing. And I was thinking, wow, this is, you know, so contemporary. I bet he's made it up. And I looked, because I mean, I'm a Cold War historian, I don't know. So I looked, and I was like, no, he hasn't made it up. No, it's really <laughs> happened. Um, so, I mean, is it quite exciting for you finding things like that in history that you can really say, hey, look, guys, there's, there's something to look at here that we can understand ourselves better through? God, Alex, I, you, you touched on something that's so real, and you both know it. It, it. When you do run across one of those moments in history, you know, medieval history, ancient history, that, um, that you say, wow, um, I, I, can, I, can, I can immediately relate to that problem. Uh, and it's also sometimes very sad that we haven't really addressed some of those things in, you know, a thousand or two thousand years. But, um, but I, that's exactly what I felt. I, I found this one little piece as I was you know, searching and searching, searching, trying to, A, learn about Vikings, you know, especially my Vikings, this latter part of Vikings. Um, and also I had to really get up to speed with, you know, with uh, English history too. You know, uh, you know, it's, it, it's one of those type of things. I'm always amazed, you know, and I've spent obviously a lot of time in the UK, but it's always fun, you know, that you consider, uh, uh, you know, have a conversation around a table and someone starts talking about, you know, an English king or a queen in the 13th century, as if it was just like George Washington, you know, back home, you know, and, and, and discuss it. Now, I'm not saying that everybody can't, but, you know, the, the, guys, there are a lot of kings over there, you know, and so that's a lot of history. So, you know, it, for, some, for someone like me to go rummaging around in, in the English waste bin to sort of find the place that this whole thing could kind of pop out. Um, I did. I, I found this one excavation. It was written up in, I think, uh, 2009, and they were putting in a new floor or something at one of the colleges at Oxford. And they under they 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 dug up these skeletons, and they were obviously not Saxon. They were they were very large male skeletons, and they you know very quickly you know determined through DNA that they were of Danish origin, and they realized that that was the king's bodyguard that had been murdered, ambushed. They had all been ambushed and they'd all been beheaded and their heads were put on one side and their bodies were on the other and they were, the, the grave was filled and it was a mass grave. And it was, you know, dated to 1002. And for me, I felt like I'd found the first domino. Um, and I, you know, because it had long been thought that Athelred had brought in his bodyguard, ambushed him, which gave him the sort of, you know, blank check to go out into the Dane law and begin this slaughter. For an armchair historian like me, and but a, a full-time screenwriter, you know, it doesn't take much, you know, once you light the fire to let the whole thing start to run. So yes, I get very excited when I find something like that. And there, there are many of those little pieces along the way in Valhalla, not just the opening the opening salvo. Well, the, the other thing that the Vikings give us in terms of this great gift for storytelling is these fantastic characters. And, 
you know, you have some really strong characters, particularly women um, in Valhalla, and they are drawn from life or from what we know from some historical evidence, aren't they? Largely with a bit of artistic license around a couple of them. Is that, is that right? They are. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that makes makes this particular time period fun to write in, you know, when you're writing female characters is that it was a it was a very egalitarian society. You know, women could divorce their husbands. They could rule. They could they could own property. Um, and that had obviously until 1066, you know, uh, you know, it was pretty good time for women's rights up to that point. And then, of course, you go into the dark ages after that. But it, it uh, that makes that makes writing uh, all of my characters very exciting. Uh, you know, when when a man is competing with a woman and it's a it's a level playing field, that makes a, a fair. A, a, sadly, it's it's you, you people call it a contemporary story, but there are millions of women out there. You know, I have two daughters who will tell you it's not a level playing field. So, you know, it's it 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 shows that you can write those type of stories without feeling like you're bending history into a 21st century, you know, with a 21st century prism. Well, I think that's it. I mean, we encounter this a lot that people kind of tend to assume even now that history is just an upward progress curve where it starts, you know, <laughs> very regressive and gets better. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> things go up and down a lot more and, and I, I think this is a fascinating view into that and did you find I mean because so coming into this as a world builder obviously you know it is coming off the back of Michael Hurst's amazing show Vikings such a great hit such something that's been such a massive global success is it interesting coming into that because you are you're not creating a world completely from scratch. And I guess that's kind of an advantage because you don't have to explain some of the basics to your audience. You know, you're not too burdened with exposition about who are the Vikings, what's wow. happening, where are we? But, you know, it allows you, on the other hand, it is differentiated, isn't it? It does allow you to build on top in a different way, in a different tone. So I think that's something quite interesting in that politically we know quite a lot has changed in the century since mm -hmm. Vikings, but also it is socially as well, isn't it? And it's texture. There are differences in the way the show is, you know, it, it, it feels quite high octane <laughs> time. Has <Yeah>. been done. <laughs> you know? If octane is not right, I was thinking what powers a longboat rowers. I don't know <laughs> what, what the equivalent is. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think it's really true. I'm uh, listen, Michael Hurst and 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 uh, you know all those wonderful filmmakers really set the bar up here. You know, it's it's it you you can't you can't come in low on a new show and build up to that point. You have to you're going to have to start at you know way up there. Um, uh, again, I have uh, I was very fortunate to inherit many of the team from the original show. Um, and, and yet, you know, it, I made it very clear when we were sitting down and we were having our early discussions and they knew from reading the scripts, the scripts are very different from, from the original Vikings. I was a fan of the original show, but I'm, I could never in my wildest dreams write a Michael Hurst episode. So I, 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 I knew the only way we were going to be, you know, would, would be to hit the rocks would be if we, if, if I tried to emulate that. So, um, but I feel like it needed to be a show that the fans of the original show, myself included, would not feel like we've lowered the bar or lowered the expectations or lowered the, 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 the level of specificity with characters and, you know, in detail. But at the same time, it was, it had to have a new tone, a new point of view, a new feeling of, you know, a pace and things like that. 
So we talked about that quite a bit from the creative team approach, from cinematography. The look is, is not that sort of cold or Scandinavian look that was in the original show. It's a warmer look. It's, you know, Peter Robertson who, who shot, you know, Vikings episodes and, you know, he, he created a new look. We brought in Niels Ardenopoulos to direct the pilot. And, um, clearly, a, a, you know, a, a spectacular Danish director, you know, who, you know, we chose, I, I, I come from the suspense world, Niels and I are part of that, you know, that, that, you know, a girl with a dragon tattoo is his, you know, is, is his baby. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's great. And I knew that suspense was going to have to be a bigger part of Valhalla, you know, as you get to love these characters, you worry about the characters and it gives you a great ground to talk, to tell those type of stories. And I wanted the scope to be big, um, which I think, you know, is very obvious in some of these episodes, like episode four. And, and that comes from coming from the most of my career has been in the feature world. So I, I, I want to fill up the whole canvas. And, and I just think we've got a great group of people who understand that. Um, I was also, and it would be remiss if I didn't say that from, you know, we, we worked with the same post-production group that Vikings did, you know, out of Canada, Take Five, and Mr. X, who does all of our visual effects. But also, we, you know, I had the great good fortune to work with Tom Conroy, our production designer. And, and, and Tom, Tom's sets and his design allows us to go play because he has that attention to the historical detail that we can all kind of like you know, not question. I mean, you know, Tom's the guy that tells me, no, Jeb, we can't build three-story buildings in Kattegat. That didn't happen. We're not going to do that, you know. So it, 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 it's really fun. Even the, this, even the construction of London Bridge takes months and months and months of research before we, you know, uh, you know, put the shovel on the ground, so to speak. No, I, was just inter- I was interested when I was watching it as a historian thinking, gosh, how do you make this feel a hundred years later when for most of us, myself included, the Vikings are just one thing, the Vikings. The Viking past is a sort of single era, but you're creating a sort of modern Viking time. And, and I was just wondering, you know, what are the kind of things that people look for for Vikings to make us feel familiar in that place? And Alex and I both work on more modern historical context and the kind of dramas I work on are set in Regency England. And mm-hmm. people write in and complain if something is five years out of date, you know, right. sort of 1815 to 1810. Uh, the Vikings are often dealing with 100-year year gap. So how do you go about making it feel more modern than the Vikings that, that we saw before? What are the kind of tricks and tips? Part of it was just, it, it's more a matter of, um, again, bringing in the religious differences, okay? I think that that's something. I, I, I think that, you know, for a fan of the original show to suddenly see Vikings who are Christian and wearing crucifixes, should make you feel uncomfortable. You know, you, you suddenly should say, that's not my Vikings. Okay. Those were the bad guys and now we can do it. But um, I think that that was, that was by design. I, I think that the Viking audience is a very intelligent audience who, who, who loves history, who, um, you know, who, who I, I, I don't mind that they, you know, they, they count the oars on my boats and say, Hmm, I'm not sure that, that's <laughs> you know, um, uh, I mean, we, we spend an enormous amount of time. I think, um, I think our audience would be uh, happy to know that, you know, the, the amount of time in terms of research and debate and concept and things like that is we take it very, very seriously. Um, you know, we take words seriously, you know, we get, we, they're screened, you know, the, you know, I, I'm constantly um, even after, 
you know, two years, I'm, I'm getting notes back that are, you know, that word is a modern word that, you know, didn't come in. And I'm, and, and, well, it came in, I, you know, by Webster's, it did come into use in England in, in 11, you know, 100. And they're like, yeah, but we're in 10, 20, you know, so we're, we throw the word out, you know, so uh, we, we wanted to feel authentic like that. And we also, you know, casting, we cast out of Europe, we want to, we want a more old world look, there's nothing wrong with them. <laughs> with that look, but it's like, you know, there's something about, you know, for, for us, we wanted that the faces and the feeling to feel fresh and, and, and different like them. I think you've done a wonderful job with that. I, I would also just kind of the last question on this part about Vikings is just as coming from this kind of amazing career you've had at a Hollywood career, kind of writing these, you know, big action thriller kind of suspense shows. What's it like coming from that and tackling historical? Because, I mean, you said you kind of see yourself as a bit of an armchair historian, but it's a very different thing, isn't it? Or is it just the same thing? It's it's actually so much. Well, listen, they both have wonderful things about them. But, um, uh, you know, being able to work in a long form storytelling is just wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful because. I'm looking over a scope of history of maybe 50 or 60 years. How are we going to go? How are we going to move through that? How, where to apportion a season? Where to apportion, you know, what's something that really should be just an episode? Um, how to take, you know, when you fall in love with certain characters, it's fun to have a longer throw to develop them other than a two-hour movie. Um, but there are other aspects of the feature world that I really love. I love being able to paint on a, when you're doing a feature, you can, paint a big story, you know, and, 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 and so you have a lot of toys and a lot of tools and stuff like that. Um, trying to squeeze that scope and scale and look into the, you know, a smaller screen is, is challenging. You know, you have a, you have a, a, a minuscule schedule to do gigantic pieces. And so we spend a lot of time uh, with the directors. We spend a lot of time with the actors. Um, we spend uh, an enormous amount of time talking about so that when we do go to work, our time can be spent efficiently through that period. And as you both know, telling a historical story is just, you know, it's, it's so much different from telling a contemporary, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to have your eye on every part of the frame. There's just nothing that can, can escape it there because your audience is looking at all that. So, um, um, but I loved it. And I, and I, again, I come back to the fact that couldn't be done without a, a crew that shares that same sort of enthusiasm for making a, a, a fun show. But I kind of got around your question. I'm still an old action writer, you know, Alex and I, you know, I, 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 I want to be entertained and I, you know, I, 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 I like that, but my action comes from the characters. So I, I want that to be driven by if, 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 if it's part of if, if, if a fight comes out of Freitas's you know, world, what would that world look like? What would she do? How would she be thinking? What's, you know, what's in her character to do that? So for me, that becomes fun to write, you know, fun to do, fun to, to choreograph, you know, the, all of those things work. And that's where I think Valhalla for me is a fun show to work on. Well, thank you so much, Jeb. It's been great to talk about um, Valhalla. And um, on the point of being wanting to be entertained, um, here at the History Film Club, we have quite an extensive library of our favourite um, TV and film productions. Is there anything you'd like to nominate for us to include in the History Film Club library, something that you particularly love? You know, I, um, I, I this is something that may or may not... Um, uh, 
be uh, what you're thinking, but I, I'm a big fan of American Westerns and American Westerns are often terrible, just really, really terrible like that. <laughs> um, um, I will say that um, one of the, um, uh, I grew up and I fell in love with uh, Jeremiah Johnson, you know, which is a, a you know, a, a Redford film, 70s Redford film and, you know, interesting story. And it, it, it covers a piece, it was picked up. It's also been sort of a bellwether for other films like Dances with Wolves and, and, and other types of stories, you know, A Man Called Horse. There've been a lot of other movies like that, but it's not your typical Western. But I, when I watch it I, from a historian's, you know, viewpoint, I really, I really think it captures a lot of the post-Civil War character. And, um, and, and, and the idea of a mountain man is very romantic, you know, for, you know, for uh, writing a good laconic, protagonist is, is, is tough. It's tough. It's a, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I bring it up is that that was one of the few movies that I, I gave Sam Corlett who plays Leif Erickson. And I said, you should watch this. It's hard to play a laconic hero. Everybody wants to play Mel Gibson, you know, and everything like that. It's tough to play that. So anyway, Jeremiah Johnson is my nominee, American Western 1970s. Okay. Delighted to have that. And actually, that makes such sense to me that actually Leif Erikson is a kind of lone cowboy figure. Yes, I'm seeing it now. I'm getting it. <laughs> That's it's right. actually very useful as a piece of backstory. <laughs> I totally see that. Thank you. How That's going to be our I... students writing essays now, aren't they? Find the links between Westerns and Vikings. <laughs> uh, that... That's not going to be a very hard link to find, you know. <laughs> well, you know, they say Star Wars is a space western. So maybe Vikings Valhalla is some sort of water western. <laughs> <laughs> water western. A new genre. Um, we also, Jeb, we do, because obviously we like to maintain a nice exclusive club and we like to ban anything that really upsets historical filmmakers from the club. So I was wondering whether there was anything that really gets your goat on set that you want to have banned in the future. On my set or on any? Or what? Well, any set. I mean, yeah, you don't have to name names. <laughs> wow. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of personal preference and stuff like that. I, I find... I still find where, whereas I, I, I love, I love all sorts of historical drama. I love it. You know, something is, is meticulous as what we do or, um, but I still love a show, you know, I can still love a show like the great, which is the antithesis of what I do, you know, the antithesis of it, but at the same time, I appreciate it. And I think that the humor comes through and it comes through in a really good way. But when you try to do, a, a mix of those two, okay, where you try to have your cake and you eat it too, that ought to be banned because you either have to go one way or you got to go the other way. It's just, I have a hard time watching something that wants to be a hybrid that isn't really one way or the other, you know? So. <laughs> I think that's excellent advice. We're going to ban indecisive fudging. Indecis <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> for oh, as the tease information says, which side of history are you on? <laughs> There we go. There we go. That's what I was so you've got to make a decision and yeah. be on either. Yeah, the, I fall I mean, into the old school camp, I'm afraid. I I think that's fair. Well, I, have to, I agree with you. I also love The Great and I'm really enjoying Vikings Valhalla, but they are definitely not to be mixed. <laughs> definitely quite different shows for sure. Um, wonderful. Thank you. We'll do that. No more of that nonsense in the History Film Club. Thank you very much. Um, well, on that basis, Jeb Stewart, it's my enormous pleasure to welcome you as a fully-fledged member of the History Film Club. Congratulations. Uh, we, we have a club badge. 
Um, oh, okay. We'll try to get it to you. Okay, good. The club badge, okay. And I, I'm expecting my dues notice anytime. I'll, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, well, we do also, we love to offer our members a, a drink from the club bar. Now, of course, it can make any historical drink. It can be alcoholic or non-alcoholic. There's no judgment in the club bar. Um, so, I mean, what would the Vikings like to toast with? What can we get you? Well, they, they would toast with meat or ale, but I, I would I would probably uh, go for a good, you know, Tanqueray Martini if that was the case. So you know. We can sneak one of those onto okay. the longship. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll, we'll get that as soon as possible from the club bar. Um, on that basis, thank you, Jeb Stewart. And I've been Alex von Tunzelman. I'm Hannah Gregg. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.